Hey fellow fraud fighters, I'm Jimmy Fong, CCO at Seon, and welcome to the Cat and Mouse podcast. Seon is fortunate to work with businesses such as the likes of Revolut, Nubank, and Patreon in the fight against fraud. But with this podcast, we want to provide a comfortable space for people to talk about the daily challenges, topics on the horizon, and ultimately give us all a better insight into the mindset of fraudsters. And with that, on with the show. So Steve Offit, massive thanks for coming in to our uh, Soho spot here. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you. And we were just talking before, like, what an incredibly varied and experienced history <laughs> you had, right? Yeah. Uh, previous. So uh, I guess if I was to recap it, uh, over a decade over at Betfair, uh, yeah. kind of learning the payments and kind of fraud space uh, all the way from ops level. Yeah. And then, of course, kind of helping uh, with more responsibility in teams as you kind of grew there. Uh, through to different adventures over at, um, we've got we've got everything from uh, Spotify, uh, being you know first kind of like member in the ground out of London as well, Eleven mm-hmm. uh, FS experience, and then over with um, the MRC of course, yeah. and being part of that uh, European board as well. Yeah. Uh, to uh, the, the team over at uh, Three on Telcos, Weldermit, and then where you are today at Forest. Like, yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if if I was a footballer, you'd definitely think, right, he's, he's a good functional player <laughs> who's, who's been at a few clubs and can, and can do some kind of job. Yeah, it's been um, it's been just under fifteen years in the payment space. Um, I started many moons ago uh, in two thousand and seven. Uh, I won't give you the the whole history, but I, I think it's quite interesting at the at the start of the career because. I, I didn't know I'd end up in the payment space. I didn't know I'd be looking after payments and risk teams. And uh, I, I think it's it's hopefully instructive for anyone thinking about a career in the space as to how you can just kind of jump in and get your hands dirty. So I came back from travel. Uh, I was living in New Zealand and Australia. Mm. Came back from travel to Ireland in 2007, which was not the most salubrious time to come to Ireland. Yeah. It was, I remember it was raining, nobody had a job. <laughs> Uh, everyone was shaking me by the lapel saying, why have you come back to this country? We're completely in the shit. Um, and uh, one of the companies that was hiring was Paddy Power in, in gambling. And so they kind of, they're somewhat recession proof in that space. Mm. Um, so I started in Paddy Power in 2007, working at night, speaking to poker players about their, not sober poker players about their bad beats. Um, which was, you know, in, instructive and kind of you learn uh, at the cold face in, in the industry. Uh, the payments team was just being started up in Paddy yeah. Paris. So within a couple of months, I'd moved over as a kind of junior BA on uh, payments. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd previously been working in the uh, banking space as well. So I, I, I knew the payment space pretty well. And yeah, it just went from there. So kind of became a, a product owner for pay at Paddy's, um, shifted over in 2014 to become the second in command to the uh, head of payments at Betfair. Uh, he then left, so I became the head of payments and, and fraud at, um, at Betfair, uh, looking after... That brewery, uh, just off of top of my head. Uh, brewery? Yeah. Uh, there was a brewery there. No, the, so the, the guy I worked with was a, 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 an esteemed gentleman called Phil Rivers, uh, okay. who, uh, who was, is one of the most universally liked people uh, in the in the space, I can't find anyone who can say a bad word about him, which is, uh, I don't think, all that common <laughs> in, in our space. Um, 
So yeah, so I, I, uh, then the companies merged and operations were being moved. So we moved to Spotify, uh, then on afterward to 11FS, as you mentioned, which was great, super team there. Um, did a while at uh, 3 UK, which was, you know, kind of a- after looking after, you know, global payments, multi-wallets, et cetera, to just laser focus on the UK and mm-hmm. just a couple of pay methods was uh, really interesting as well. And then to World Remit uh, mm-hmm. for two years, um, looking at uh, looking after teams sending money around the world, you know, what was it, 90% going within a half hour. So from a fraud screening perspective, that is a pretty squeaky bum experience. That's crazy, yeah, because yeah. we were talking about it like um, uh, in the kind of pre-chat before, yeah. like that, that will remit experience of like balancing speed, because surely that is the reason why people sign up to that service in the first place, versus say the balance of security. Uh, yeah. But like you said, um, You've got to do it in like fractions <laughs> of a. You've only got, you know, you've you've only got seconds on some transactions, and oh. you're talking about, you know, from a from a risk perspective, you're talking about um, somebody coming from uh, West Africa to the UK. Um, they uh, come to improve their lives and to send money home as well, which is amazing. And World Emitter, you know, helping helping people to do that, which is life changing. Um, but you're trying within within that you know really short period of time to validate the person's identification, make sure you're comfortable with their payment from a KYC perspective, uh, from a compliance perspective, mm-hmm. and then from an overall risk appetite perspective for fraud, and then to successfully get that money distributed to the person who needs it most. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, I mean it's a it's a responsibility. Um, I described it. I, we were saying earlier as well. I, I described it yesterday as you know. It, if I was to sum up the function of a fraud team in, a, in, in, a, in an analogy, um, you've got 100 people who are trying to get into a football ground. You've got one person within that group of 100 that you don't want to let in, but you also don't want to piss off the 99 <laughs> others. So the question is, how do, you get, how do you find that guy while still allowing people to feel like they've got this seamless experience? Because from a, from a world remit or remittance perspective in general, Everyone wants their payment, your right to be low cost, to be low cost, fast and secure. But I want my payment to be secure. I don't mind if, you know what I mean? I don't mind if everyone else's payment <laughs> takes, but it takes, you know, really long or is less secure, but my money has to go successfully. So uh, stepping back and, and looking at those payments from a, a meta perspective, um, it really comes down to, can we get at the data points that we need in as real time a methodology as possible? to get to a really high degree of confidence that the money we're accepting and then passing out is, is money we're comfortable using. And we, we have a high degree of confidence that we're not going to see a chargeback. And in that skinny margin business, like that ability to uh, be successful at picking out that one person in that 100 crowd, right, yeah. is the lifeblood of the business. But... 100%, yeah. I mean, you know, so the, the, the logical steps that you go through will be, well, let's just send everything. And then you get hit by fraud. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, it's like uh, it's like somebody's broken up with you in a bad way. You're like, well, I'll never be hurt again. I'll protect myself. But then you start to you start to lower um, the authorization rate. And you're taking in less transactions. So then you've got a marketing team coming to you saying, what the fuck are you doing? We mm-hmm. we just spent our cost to acquire this customer was thirty five dollars, and you've declined their first transaction. Why have you done this? So then you begin to move into kind of the, the second state after that first fraud hit. Um, you move into that second state of, okay, well, we can get more granular on this and we can try to understand a little better who, who's, um, 
uh, whose money are we comfortable taking? We probably need a manual review team. And then you realize, well, now your cost to acquire that customer is not just the marketing spend or the PPC or whatever it was. It's now also 20% of your transactions are going to a manual review team. And mm. that, that person sitting there looking at that transaction costs money. So then you again, you try to squeeze that down to let's get that 20% down to 18%. Let's get that 18 down to 14. And then the only way to do that without exposing yourself to more risk is to get better at making automated decisions faster. So mm. it's, it, it's, it's really funny. You know, they're very, I've worked in disparate industries, but the fundamentals of the making the decision on the transaction from a fraud perspective, they never change. It's just, it's just about can I accurately identify number one, uh, reduce false positives and number two, reduce our false negatives. So I'm not pissing off people who should validly send money, but I'm also making it as inconvenient as possible for a fraudster um, to use our platform in the way that they want. Yeah, that's, that, that last <laughs> sentence is quite key. You're trying to make a, um, yeah, the, the bar is high enough in the organization you're with that there's other opportunities from their point of view uh, that they can probably go to, well, to some extent. I, I worked with a gentleman who had been in the uh, fraud and uh, compliance space in banking for 20, 25 years. Mm. And his, his analogy was always, you don't need to be 100% secure. You just need to be more secure than the guy down the road. <laughs> so it, it's, it's the, you know, it's, it's the, the analogy of the, you know, if we're both running from a tiger, I don't need to be faster than the tiger. I just need to be faster than you, unfortunately, <laughs> right? So, um, and, and that's definitely the case. So whether we're, you know, to, to think of remittance companies in general, I know, that there are fraudsters who are testing, you know, uh, World Remit, they're, they're testing WISE, they're testing, you know, any, any number, Western Union, any number of companies. They're repeatedly testing. And what they're looking for is that little gap where they can focus and say, right, these guys have set up their fraud rules. For example, um, these guys have a 24-7 fraud team mm. and these guys have a, uh, uh, they, they've got a 12-hour team and they go to skeleton crew afterward, right? So they can only uh, manually review X number of transactions during this time. So we get our, you know, fraudsters are willing to work late nights and early mornings. Or they're only working those optimized shifts because exactly. they know where... They don't need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's, they'll, they'll pen test on, on those lower cards, uh, lower value cards, find mm -hmm. the times when the transactions are more likely to get through, and that's when you get hit. I mean, with, without going into too much detail, I, you know, I've had a really significant fraud attack, which hurts. Um, you know, it, it, it both hurts in terms of your workload increases, uh, your stress level increases, uh, your team stress level increases, and you're scrabbling around to make sure that you, you're minimizing those fraud losses. You're, you're both blocking the door and keeping your Exco team completely up to date on what's happening. So it hurts in terms of stress, but it also personally hurts because mm. You know, sometimes in in fraud screening, you really feel like you're uh, you're successfully blocking fraudsters, and you feel like you're as in control as if you were playing a chess game, and you, you know, right, I've got this guy, this is fine. Mm -hmm. And other times, you know, it does not feel like a chess game. It feels like uh, you're you're in a wind tunnel trying to pick things up, and it's all, everything's just flying at you and hitting you. And that bit that you were saying, Steve, around uh, uh, kind of like yeah, the stresses the I guess this is kind of that pre-chat you're talking about, like even a little bit of what it felt like to be under a live uh, fraud attack. It's an awful experience. I, I did, the, the reason I brought up the, the attack was there was no question they knew our 
fallow times in, mm. in, in that in that fraud attack. And I, I kind of afterward, when I sat back, I was kind of I kind of admired what they did as well. You know, there's part if if you work in fraud and you know you've not you've not left your company ex- exposed to something stupid, and a, a group of fraudsters have been quite clever in what they've done. You do kind of sit back and go. Well, well played. You know, I mean, I, uh, I I wish that they would, you know, direct their attentions to other industries. But um, th- there is something uh, where you step back and you go, okay, that was organised, that was, you know, intentional. Um, you can move the money well into uh, instruments that I can't really pull it back from, etc. So, mm. but yeah, that that feeling uh, when you're under a fraud attack. Because uh, I think you know there there are two ve- there are two polar opposites of feelings in fraud. There's one where you are absolutely in control. You're walking in every morning to a report from your team to say you know we blocked this and this this amount of transactions. Um, we have this high degree of confidence that these are uh, not uh, false false positives or indeed uh, more troubling false negatives. Um, and you know, and here's your basis points of uh, chargeback losses over your total uh, volume, and it's it's within the accepted range. Mm-hmm. There is that calm kind of almost BAU feeling, and then you're hit on a fraud attack. It is it, it is a polar opposite feeling. It, it is a feeling of uh, a loss of control, and um, uh, that potentially the losses could be you know you can't even quantify them. It could be anything, right? At that time. Um, and until you work out the the modus operandi, um, there is this feeling of well, like I'm being attacked, and I can't even really explain how. So that that feeling, which I think all fraud managers have had at some point, um, is is what we're trying to avoid. What we're tr- what we're trying to have is a, a position where you, you will you will get some fraud losses through because you have a risk appetite, which is X. Uh, you stay within that risk appetite. And uh, if if anything, you outperform it and kind of incrementally improve over time. Any um, practical tips on um, how to manage expectations from, say, management <laughs> and the board? Yeah, because uh, I, I guess that is the most uh, base human fear, right? When you've just got big question marks yeah. over a lack of control and visibility to liability and loss at that stage. Any practical tips? Because I mean, that's what. I guess our fraud managers are uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to pull out. I, so I think the, the age old, um, as long as I've been speaking to people about fraud at conferences, whether it's MRC or um, which is excellent, and I advise everyone to join the MRC because you know nothing will hockey stick your knowledge uh, of the fraud and payment space more than speaking to professionals who, who know the space. Um, but yeah, the, the age old problem in fraud is that nobody wants to Understandably, businesses don't want to throw money at fraud prevention because um, why do that when I can, you know, I can spend an, uh, another, you know, two hundred k on marketing and I can get more customers. I, I need customers now. Customers and uh, revenue, customers, revenue, margin, growth are the oxygen of companies that are, you know, a- a- attempting to grow and do- doing things like. Um, uh, uh, to, to a lesser extent, compliance stuff, which is kind of binary and it has to be done. But from a fraud perspective, if I if I say uh, to, to you, you're my, you're my CEO, and I say to you, look, our fraud losses right now, we're at nine to 12 basis points of uh, chargeback losses right now. However, my concern is I don't have the tools right now to be able to keep those losses within those levels. Right now, we're being lucky. 
people are not focused on us from a fraud perspective. But as we grow, and once we're in the news, yeah, it's great for investors. It's also fraudsters will take a look. And I don't have the tools uh, to defend us um, from those losses. So right now, I, it could be anything from 500k to 1.2 million of a, of a fraud loss. The problem you'll have is until people lose that 500k to 1.2 million or whatever number, um, it is very difficult to get traction for uh, new fraud uh, screening development. Um, uh, companies, you know, w want to look elsewhere. The the really interesting thing, though, the, the advice that I would, which I mean, this is very practical advice. I don't know uh, how delighted people would be to hear this, but if you do experience a fraud attack, that my advice would be: you have a, a three to six month window where all arms are wide open. People are <laughs> really ready to listen to you about budgets you need for you know new fraud screening tools or fraud uh, fraud blocking methodologies in in two times in my career when i've been you know i've been at the helm while we've been seriously attacked from a fraud perspective immediately afterward people are willing to spend money which is not how it should be obviously yeah. we, sh we should spend the money up front and avoid the costs the, the loss after but there are practicalities that fraud managers will know that you know i mean your, your chargeback losses will come from a dip or hit a different PL line than the um, than the budget to uh, to build the fraud screening capability. And when that happens, when there's a misalignment mm -hmm. between where the money is lost versus how the money could be saved, um, that misalignment leads to a, a lack of investment in fraud. It's it's not what I what I would love to give you, Jimmy, is the answer that here's how you get that budget up front. So that you don't get those losses, that I think is, is one of the most challenging things for for fraud and uh, for fraud managers. And I think you explaining the other side of the coin, quite frankly, uh, from a business point of view, what is the oxygen that's needed? Yeah. It's growth, uh, you know, first and foremost. I like your lens of looking at it um, on the fraud fighting side as well. Is when you do put in certain layers, it adds that cost of acquisition, uh, that CAC, right? Yeah. As you said, there's a percentage for manual review. Uh, you're obviously trying to optimize that. And every tool stack you keep adding in yeah. kicks into that. But but again, that goes into what you're saying around uh, being smart, using tech for what it's used for, automation, uh, et cetera. And it's, yeah. that fine tuning can be the lifeblood, especially for like razor sharp businesses like transfer businesses. Yeah, uh, I, I think. Money remittance in particular, and this in general for the industry, that that is um, becoming an incredibly tight margin game. So you've got the, the history of the of the industry is you know for for years legacy banks taking bloody ages to send you money around the world and charging you um, you know twelve to twenty pounds for the transaction, and you've you've now got um, uh, you know real challengers in the remittance space who are send, sending those transactions for pence. And they're sending them in real time. Yeah. Um, and what they're trying, what they're trying to do is is a combination of um, uh, you know make those margins, but also there's an FX piece which your bank don't want you to know about as well. And if they can play in that space too, there's, there, you know there, there's an opportunity there. Um, but yeah, from a from from a fraud screening perspective, um, I would say as well for fraud managers, it's something that I think is brought up by what you just said, which is. It, it's really interesting when you see the type of people who get into fraud management as well. So I've kind of come from a more commercial side into um, the fraud screening um, space. A, a lot of people come directly and immediately in from fraud screening and they're data analysts and they 
the, the attitude can, can sometimes be, well, but the correct thing is to just block all the fraud. So can we not just block all the fraud? And, and they can sometimes forget why the business is in place. Like, yeah. well, understandably, because you know, that's why you hire subject matter experts, because they're passionate in the <clears> space. <throat> but sometimes that passion can come across as like uh, you know, a blinkered view, where it's just the only thing we should care about is fraud screening. And you know, it's, it's, it's not the case. Like if we go back to the analogy of the 100 people getting into the football ground, the purpose is not you want to catch that one guy, but the reason the football ground exists is to get the 99 people into the ground. Um, and I think sometimes business cases in fraud can forget that element, can forget that there's, you know, there's a commercial piece behind this as well. So what can be really successful and powerful um, can be to focus on false negative um, uh, identification, where you can make a business case for fraud, which says, look, I, we're, we're going to integrate with X or Y partner. And that is going to give us such shit hot fraud detection that actually I don't need to block um, you yeah. know, uh, 20% of the transactions that were going from a, uh, a Nigerian card, which was being used in, uh, in Brussels without 3D secure switched on by, you know, without 3D secure liability ship, whatever it might be. That sounds like a risky transaction. However, we can now uh, get some kind of um, uh, risk score on, the, on, on other elements of the transaction which were unavailable to us, where actually that's not a risky transaction at all. And that's new revenue, and that's revenue we would have missed out on without this tool. So I think business cases in fraud can benefit most from having one eye on the commercial concerns of the company. But business cases in fraud that only focus on, I'm going to block the shit out of all of these transactions, can, uh, can struggle to gain traction. <laughs> That's beautiful. False negative focus instead. So the revenue opportunity, and it's like, we're probably turning away that stuff as well. Yeah. Like, so that's that's a really good focus. I'm going to change focus um, yeah. uh, as well, back into just pre-Welcome uh, as well. Like, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of sharing some crazy, like, experience from the three days. Um, oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but as in, yeah, I, I, I mean, mean fascinating, like, in terms of the you know, in physical fraud, what you saw as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think in um, uh, in, in the telco space, it's it's less of an issue now, but there was a period where, um, and it's occurring elsewhere, where a, a, a decent modus operandi for uh, a fraudster would be to get 10, a group of 10 or 15, uh, 16 to 17 year old, generally boys, um, one of them would walk into the shop, you know, kind of uh, a, a minute or less um, before uh, what was about to take place would take place. They would advise the staff to, you need to clear this place now because we are going to hit your shop. And within that very short period of time, a group would run in and just pull the place apart and pull, uh, pull phones, you know, out of stands, pull hold stands away. Um, and then a van would pull up and uh, all of the um, contents of the store will be pushed into the van. The boys would then run off. Um, the business model is you just pay each of them 50 quid for doing what they do. Every, everything they pull into their hand, they would focus on devices, 900 pounds and over. And yeah, that, that was a business model, and <laughs> it, 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 you know, which is crazy. And uh, members of the public and staff were injured during, during this. So, you know, it, it, when you, when you move into the physical space, there is that extra risk as well. But the model remains the same. You have a business, you're open up, you open up for business. There is a, there's an inherent risk in what you do. S somebody identifies that risk. They hit you. 
and then you learn. So actually, um, stands that now can't be pulled uh, out of the ground are now in place and no longer just on wheels. Mm. Um, uh, you know, kind of high high end devices not shown at the uh, at the front of the store or sometimes not accessed at all. And tethering for them would would require. Um, in order to remove them from their tethers, you're actually going to damage the phone so much that mm. it, you know it's no longer serviceable. So mm. it's it's that it, you you have an opportunity, you get hit, you uh, optimize, and then un unfortunately those people don't go away. They just go to the next place that, that where you know people haven't optimized in that space, and and they will unfortunately get hit. Yeah. Um, and definitely in, in ecom, I mean, with the with the explosion in ecom post COVID, um, there. I've, I've spoken to several businesses who are learning this hard lesson, you know, very painfully and very quickly, and are, are learning that they, they need to um, partner with uh, technology companies in fraud who understand the space, who can build them heuristic rule sets really quickly, um, who can, you know, fundamentally defend them from fraud. Um, it's been really interesting as well, again, without getting into specific, specifics, but talking to some companies who's um, businesses that have exploded during COVID in, e in econ, they get hit on fraud. And there are still some businesses making the decision to build their own full heuristic fraud tool sets themselves. And they're into waterfall, you know, 18-month projects because they're realizing the complexity of what they need to build um, is, is enormous. Um, so, yeah, COVID has led to some, uh, A, some big revenues for fraudsters, and B, some understandable but kind of if you step back, some odd decisions from e-commerce <laughs> e merchants as well. I get it. It would be cool to build it yourself, but you know, um, I'll kind of uh, I'll get on the soapbox in a bit. But like, it, <laughs> it goes back to thinking about what is the purpose of your business. You didn't get into this space to become a fraud screening company. You didn't get into this space to become a de facto payments gateway. Um, other people are doing orchestration and uh, fraud analytics better than you could in two years time so you know i i admire the hell out of people who want to build it themselves i just question whether it's um uh pride a little bit that makes them think well you know uh, we've got we've got great developers they can build anything especially with a lot of fintech right it's the heart of uh 100 yeah we're we're dead we can build product that's what we do yeah uh, and yeah. by the way like as we all know capital climates are in a different place now and yeah. uh, there's no lack of resources to do so. But like you said, it's whether you want an 18-month release cycle on something. It's, it's particularly in fintech, this hubris, uh, like, you know, in, in, I mean, in, in, in the gambling space, um, when, I, you know, when I worked at Paddy Power and Bedfair, um, very quickly there was an understanding that, you know, we need to partner with, uh, you know, uh, the, the extant uh, fraud screening uh, partners at that time. Let's partner with these guys. And use their rule sets. We'll optimize them. We'll have a we'll have a, a, a lot like a significant team, but still as light touch as possible, uh, performing manual reviews, etc. Um, but in fintech, there does seem to be somewhat of an attitude of, well, of course we can just build this ourselves. We built everything else, so we'll, we'll build this as well, which is uh, you know an, an interesting way to go. I love the takeaway for me of um, you know over the last two years with the pandemic. Um, Kind of related to kind of your last story around the uh, uh, smash and grabbing yeah. within the kind of telco industry, that three one, and how people respond. Your takeaway was it doesn't disappear. Of course, it doesn't disappear. They just move on to the next available opportunity. 
And there's a million opportunities out there, right? There's a million of them, especially with, you know, all these businesses jumping online in the last couple of years um, and fraudsters recognizing that. That's kind of the thing we've seen is the sad reality is is fraud is on the rise at at unprecedented levels because there's that perfect conflict of businesses that are going on because they had to, to survive even, and yet fraudsters knew this. And that's, that's undoubtedly where they're spending that time and effort just now is on the easy, easy wins there. My feeling from, uh, and this is this is not quantified, so I'm, I'll caveat it with it that, that it is just, my, my feeling is that um, there aren't enough fraudsters for the number of opportunities right now. Like there is so much opportunity from, which is, you know, which is, again, I, I, I think I'm a pessimist, but uh, I, I really, you know, the, the opportunities from fraud, like if I, it, it, Whenever I'm online and I'm purchasing something from a store, I will just think like, you know, what was what was the 3D secure flow there? They seem to think that ABS is super important and it, it works really well. That's interesting. And the more stores that I that I see who do this or kind of you know stand up, uh, you can stand up a Stripe integration or a Shopify integration, you know, in a, in a couple of hours, really, and start selling stuff online. Um, and the, I'm seeing a lot of stores who seem to just have exactly done that. And I think, you know, if if uh, if fraudsters were to cast their eye upon this, yeah. you know, the, the exposure is 100% of all of those transactions um, because they haven't done the fundamentals. It's understandable they haven't. They've got a product. People want to buy it. It's exciting. They can, you know, at the start, you're, you're making crazy margins per transaction. But, you know, the, the risk then is a fraudster comes in and... Um, at a certain size for companies, fraudsters have the opportunity to completely invalidate a business model, which is, you know, yeah. scary. You were saying uh, to, to myself as well, uh, ahead of going live around uh, your colleague and giving some advice to they were in general project management just oh, yeah, now, yeah. and uh, they were uh, going to you for, hey, Steve, like, uh, where, where can I pick up? Your 15 years of like payments <laughs> understanding yeah. or interchange, what ABS is, yeah. what, you know, how 3D secure work, how, what are even fraud technologies, et cetera. And you were saying, uh, she was asking, okay, where's the book I can yeah. uh, kind of read this? <laughs> right? uh, I, yeah, so this was uh, when I was at Spotify, uh, I, you know, and it's not, I don't think that's an embarrassing question. That's an entirely reasonable question. Oh, right, yeah, lots so, of uh, you Completely. I mean, it was a product manager who, you know, was, I, I was explaining to her about, you know, whether it was acquiring banks or gateways or 3D security, and the list goes on, right? And, she, you know, she was kind of like, Steve, where's the, where's the fucking book? I need, to just, I need to be able to read this. And there, at, at the moment, I think, you know, um, I think in the, in the medium to long term as well, my prediction will be that for learning the payment space and, and learning about kind of, you know, fraud screening and what works and what doesn't, why, uh, there, there is no way to short circuit it. You know, you, you have to leverage a community. You have to yeah. almost <laughs> learn it by osmosis over time. You know, so you go to a, a talk from somebody about um, uh, d- uh, device identification or about uh, geotagging or you know about um, dis- distributed uh, data points that you can just pick up uh, across the web on transactions. And then after that, you kind of talk to the person and you, you say, well, this is my pain point. You know, this is this is why I'm at this conference. I've been hit, you know, on, on this type of fraud. And you get their suggestion, which leads you to another conversation. Um, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll bang on about it, but the, the Merchant Risk Council 
in particular has been career changing for me. Like I'm, I'm not blowing smoke up its collective arse um, uh, to, to say like it, meeting those people and, and learning about the pain in space and having those connections and just being able to, you know, if, if a problem occurs, being able to, you know, go, go into LinkedIn or go into my address book and go, I know a guy who can help with that. Like I know a guy who, who's seen this type of role before, or I, I know a woman who, you know, leads a team. You know, I need to stand up a team in uh, Manila who are going to do fraud screening. Oh, this company did that. I know that. I can ask her how that went for her. Maybe, you know, what's a fair unit price per, you know, per hour or whatever. Um, so b- building a community and building a, a, a real network in payments and fraud is, is game changing for your career. Yeah, massive. You said the phrase earlier that it can uh, hockey stick up your knowledge, right? Yeah. And I was just reflecting just as you were saying that. And it's, I imagine it's actually down to the intrinsic nature of the problem that's ever evolving. So by the time that, that nice tune gets published, it yeah. presumably is out of date from tactics and exploits used. So that's part of the issue. So what's the next best thing is probably putting people with brains together where they're able to converse, uh, empathize and talk tactical, quite frankly. Yeah, so yeah. stuff like community is mega for that, right? Uh, yeah. and the fraudsters use it, uh, certainly. They're on Telegram groups. They, it doesn't matter if they're attacking an airline or attacking a yeah. transfer business or a, or a digital streaming music service. It doesn't yeah. really matter. Uh, oh, completely. I mean, the, it, you know, the, the network effect works in both ways. You know, I, I, it, uh, I've I've had uh, members of my team, and part part of their job was just to troll Facebook groups around you know our particular companies. You know, oh, you can send, uh, you know, there's this sending code, and if you mm-hmm. use this code three times, and you know, you, you you can actually net get you know X money out. So you you learn about holds in your own product through kind of you know looking over the fence at those frauds as well. But yeah, that network effect occurs. Uh, on both sides, and it's really, really powerful. Um, uh, th- there is that nice feeling when when you are like looking over the fence at a, a group of fraudsters chatting about how they're going to um, hit your uh, hit your site, and you fix the problem while watching it. It's, it that is a that is a really pleasant feeling when that occurs. Um, it's getting more challenging. You, you mentioned like use of Telegram. You know, there's. When you can find a Facebook group uh, and it's it's a, a bunch a bunch of people just talking about how they're going to uh, attack your site, that's excellent. But more and more, um, you you know, it's on it's on the dark web. You can see uh, the, the start of a chat, and then someone goes, "Okay, DM me now for you know for the details," and you lose all the content content. So, mm. I mean, yeah, more more and more from a uh, from an emergent fraud perspective you're relying on your network to tell you you know x or y is happening you know um has happened to to us um and and we've been hit and you can avoid this the telco industry does that particularly well mm-hmm. from a fraud perspective the, the there's a really tight uh, network of um fraud managers who discuss their businesses really openly mm-hmm. um, in the space um, the uh, the online gambling community as well do that too. I think, but you know, both in terms of um, uh, fraud, but also responsible gambling. Those those companies have to be talking to each other about, you know, here's a list of people who mm-hmm. self exclude. We need to share all that as well. So, um, but there are industries where that sharing unfortunately doesn't occur because you know I, I think people can incorrectly um, see that information as some kind of competitive advantage. I mean, yeah. it isn't. You know, I totally get that everything you know can be seen as a competitive advantage. But on, on the other side, you know, just 
It's only a competitive advantage in fraud if you if you a want your fraud blocked and b wish it upon your competitor. And I like I I would not subscribe to that kind of idea. I think we should all be sharing as much knowledge as possible on fraud. And then probably the fraud moves to a different industry. It, it never goes away. It's you know it's it's water flowing downhill. And if it hits hard rock, it'll go around it. And the the idea will be let's all have hard rock. Let's all have fraud protection such that. Um, it, 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 you can even think of it from a self-interested perspective because you can say if we can get these guys to fuck off and leave our industry alone or not see our industry as so open to fraud it benefits all of us and therefore benefits us in particular at, at X company um, so I, yeah I, I do there are things which which give companies a real competitive advantage and you know they're they're your own proprietary it's it's your shit. You should be protective of that. I don't think fraud knowledge fits in that space. I kind of want to. My idea would be everyone needs to share that as much as possible. Dave, this has been a fascinating chat. As you know, uh, we're known as the Cat and Mouse podcast, uh, so our audience is always uh, super curious. Their guests uh, in the world of fraud fighter uh, versus, say, professional fraudster. Yeah. Who who is the cat? Who's the mouse? In your opinion, I think. Based on what we've said, it's probably no surprise I'm going to say I've been both. Uh, I've been like, I've, I've had that like superior feeling of watching someone in a, you know, uh, almost in a sand, not realizing they're in a sandbox environment, but I'm watching every fraudulent thing they're attempting to do, especially in gambling where you've got asynchronous movement of money, right? So you've got, um, uh, you've got money coming in. And then you've got play, and then you've got money going out if they win. Mm. Um, and during that period, you can feel from a fraud perspective, I know you're a fraudster. I'm just going to watch what you do on my site and learn. And that that's the kind of cat feeling of like, I'm in control here. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm backing you back and forth. This is fun. <laughs> Those 4 a.m. Uh, fraud attacks where I don't know what's coming. I can't get data. I can't get a data engineer up. Um, money is going out the door. I can't switch off the website because, you know, otherwise I, everything's affected. I've definitely been the mouse as well. So I, unfortunately, I know you probably want a definite decision. I think the idea is the intention should be to have more of those cat days than mouse days. And I think, you know, if you're, if, if, the, if those mouse days are rare, you're probably doing pretty well. Amazing, Steve. Th thank you so much for coming in. Be fascinated. Really enjoyed it. Cheers, Jimmy. Nice. Thanks. Thanks.